There are not many things more delightful than finding treasure in unlikely places. Rather, it's finding a $5 bill and a pair of jeans. That ever happened to somebody? It's a great day when that happens. Or finding a valuable item that's been tucked away in an attic for decades and then stumbling across it in the midst of spring cleaning. Or even just finding a penny on the ground. There's nothing more delightful than finding treasure in unlikely places. And the story that we come to here in John chapter five is nothing short of unlikely. But as we will soon see, it is full of treasure. And so what I wanna do this morning is to serve as your tour guide. And as we journey through this story, I want to just make three observations throughout, three observations that I believe will encourage you, challenge you, and even change your life. So if you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter five, and we begin by looking at verse one. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which is five-roofed, colonnades. So the text tells us Jesus is making his way to a Jewish feast. We're not sure which feast. The Bible doesn't tell us. The Jewish feast is being held in Jerusalem, and along his way there, he comes across what is known as the Sheep Gate. Now the Sheep Gate, there was a a large uh, temple compound in Jerusalem, and the Sheep Gate was the northern entrance. It was a large hole in the wall for sheep to get through that when 120,000 sheep were slain at the dedication of the temple. And right outside of this pool, or right outside of this gate rather, is a pool called Bethesda. This pool, some scholars think, was a sort of hot spring that on occasion, they don't think it happened on an everyday basis, maybe once a week, once a month, once a year, we're not really sure. But every so often there would be a boiling surge of water from underneath the ground that would come up into the pool and warm and heat this entire pool. Directly above the pool, as you look, you see five roofed colonnades. You say, what's a colonnade? Think cabana. It's a sort of shade for people who are laying in the pool or beside the pool to shade them from the heat of the sun. So this is where Jesus is coming, where setting of the story takes place. And then verse three. In these, so in, in this pool of Bethesda, lay a multitude of invalids. Now what's an invalid? Well, an invalid was understood to be someone with a physical disability, it's who they were. And it says that through this multitude of invalids, there's three in particular, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Picture it. Jesus walks by the sheep gate, He looks over at the pool of Bethesda and he sees hundreds of people laying by this pool. All of them with some sort of disability. Some can't see, some can't walk, and some can't move. Now we have to understand history behind John chapter five that in ancient Near Eastern times, invalids were outcast of society. People didn't want anything 
to do with him. In fact, some ancient literature I was reading tells us that people believe that invalids were either contagious or under some kind of curse that was transferable. As a result, literally, there, uh, this one uh, old journal-like um, document I was reading, parents would actually teach their kids to not look at an invalid, to not touch an invalid, and to not get near an invalid with the fear of becoming like them. They were outcast. Verse five. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. We're not sure how old this man is. The Bible doesn't tell us. But what we do know is that the average life expectancy for someone living in this day was only 40 years. In other words, most likely, this man had been laying by this pool for nearly all of his life. For 38 years, he had been overlooked, despised, and rejected by the world around him. How sad. Until, verse six, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And it is here that we make our first observation, which is this. You don't find Jesus. Jesus finds you. Here sits a man the world has deemed unimportant, unwanted, and beyond healing. But on what seemed like just another day, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, at this point, 38 years laying by this pool, days turn into weeks, weeks roll over into months, months turn into years, years turn into decades, it's just another day. And on just what seemed like another day, Jesus shows up and not by accident. Look at verse six. It says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. Two important words. Jesus saw and Jesus knew. Jesus looks at this man, which would have been unthinkable by the world standards, and, and even more importantly, knows this man. It's important to notice that this invalid man does not ask Jesus to come. He does not beg Jesus to come. And as a matter of fact, he doesn't even know who Jesus is. Yet while Jesus is a stranger to this man, this man is no stranger to Jesus. Seemingly unaware. This man has a divine appointment with the Son of God that was planned before the foundation of the world. G.K. Chesterton, upon reflecting on his conversion, once said this, God was seeking me when I had not been sought. God was pursuing me when I had been completely unaware. 
God was calling me by name before I ever knew his. And then he says this. God was chasing after me like a hound of heaven. To put it another way, every Christian testimony can begin with these three words. God found me. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he, what? First loved us. Perhaps you find yourself here today in this place and you don't know Jesus. And recently you've been wondering why God has put you in certain, certain circumstances that you find yourself in. Maybe it's at work, maybe at home, maybe at school, maybe just in life in general. And now you find yourself here listening to me tell you that God pursues people. My friend, can I just, can I just say, could it be that God is shaking your life to save your life? And, and could it be that he brought you here today in this place to hear the good news that Jesus lived, died, and rose again so that you can find true life in him and you can trust him? Just as Jesus comes to this invalid man, before this invalid man ever asked Jesus to come, and isn't that how Jesus comes to us all? That we look back at our Christian testimony and we think, I was pursuing Jesus, and you were. Oh, but your pursuit of him was brought on by his pursuit of you. And just as Jesus comes to this invalid man, he comes to you today and calls you to follow him. Verse six, so Jesus comes to this invalid man, ask him a peculiar question. This is when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you wanna be healed? Verse seven, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I am going, another steps down before me. Now, most scholars believe that this pool of Bethesda was full of superstition. People believe that an angel would occasionally come, stir up the water, and whoever would step into the water when it is stirred up, they would become instantly healed. Now, the reason people believe this was because it appeared that some people who had infirmities before would step into the water, and when they stepped out, it appeared that they were healed. So people believed this myth, and it, it carried on. Now, a little Bible study this morning. You guys good with that? We, we have to remember that this, was, this took place 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago. When healthcare wasn't anything close to what we have today. In fact, this is crazy. Did you know that in the 1800s, doctors actually prescribed for people that had um, diseases or sicknesses, they prescribed that they should cut you open, let some of your blood run out, and then when you do that, the sickness was in the blood and you would no longer be sick or have a disease. That was 200 years ago. Now imagine 2,000 years ago. No MRIs, no syringes, and no dum dum lollipops, which is the best part of going to a doctor. <laughs> I'm taking that as an amen, the baby crying, thank you. None of that. 
So it is quite possible that someone with a certain rheumatoid or the sorts would step into this water when it's boiling hot and they would feel instant relief, which makes sense why when Jesus asked this invalid man if he wants to be healed, the man instantly has a response. Look at verse seven. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. He's believing this myth. We don't know how long, probably forever. When the waters are stirred up and while I am going, another steps down before me. Now, take a step back. Imagine being this man. Every day the man woke up thinking, if I could just get in that pool, I'd be healed. And every day for 38 years, it doesn't happen. Now some of you hear that and you think, oh, 38 years, that doesn't sound so bad. All right, listen, I know some of you and you get fed up waiting in the Starbucks drive-thru for more than five minutes, okay? You know who you are. So, so, so can you imagine waiting day after day after day after day after day after day after day for 38 years, wanting something so badly and you never get it? And then the unthinkable happens. Verse eight, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. This is amazing, verse nine, and at once, the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. For 38 years, years. Do you remember what you were doing 38 years ago? I was like negative 10. In fact, <laughs> in fact, someone told me before the service, they're like, yeah, when we thought you were on stage, we thought you were graduating high school. I am not, I promise you. I barely graduated high school, glad I did. And, and yet for 38 years, this man couldn't move, and with just eight words from Jesus, he gets up and he runs. Which leads to our second observation, which is this. When God speaks, miracles happen. Question, how powerful is God's word? Or to put it another way, what happens when God speaks? The Bible tells us that when God speaks, the universe as we know it comes into existence. When God speaks, seas split in two. When God speaks, the sun stands still. When God speaks, entire armies are struck down, dry bones come to life, the heavenly beings tremble in fear, lepers are healed, blind men see, demons run in terror, dead men come to life, sinners become saints, the unthinkable becomes reality, impossible becomes possible, brokenness transforms into glory. To make it plain, when God speaks, God acts. So how powerful is God's word? 
more powerful than anything in this world. The question is, do you live like that's true? Do you make time every day to read the Bible because you know that God uses his word to make you more like Jesus? Do you teach the Bible to your children because you know it is only the word that is strong enough to change a heart? Or how about this one? Do you share the Bible with unbelievers because you know God uses his word more than good arguments to save sinners? Brothers and sisters, we need not wonder when we read, teach, and share the Bible if the Bible works. Isaiah 55 verse 11. So shall my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In other words, God using his word, he has a 100% batting average. He never strikes out, he never swings and misses. No, every time his word goes forth, it does exactly what he purposed it to do. And here's the thing, God always uses his word, even if we can't see that he is. Perhaps no one knew this more than a man named Luke Short. Luke was an 18-year-old living in the 17th century. He was an unbelieving young man. And on one occasion, it's his family, it was a holiday, they're going to church, Luke goes with them. He didn't normally go to church, but he went with them on this day. And on that day, John Flavel, the 17th century Puritan, happened to be preaching. There's about 50 people max in the congregation, and John Flavel is preaching on how Jesus absorbed the wrath of God so that when we place our faith in Jesus, we're justified before him. And at the end of the sermon, John Flavel repeated a phrase. If you're not in Christ, you're under the wrath of God. If you're not in Christ, you're under the wrath of God. If you're not in Christ, you're under the wrath of God. Well, those words went in and out of Luke's ear, and he walked out the same way he walked in, an unbeliever. Through a series of events, as he entered into different stages of life, he he actually left England eventually and came to America where he lived for about 82 years. And on Luke Short's deathbed, at the age of 100, he did what we all do, and that is reflect on his life, the memories, the people, the circumstances he experienced. And he said, as he sat on his deathbed, on the verge of dying, a thought came into his mind like a thief in the night, he said. So much so, he said, I couldn't help but repeating it. You know what the phrase was? If you're not in Christ, you're under the wrath of God. If you're not in Christ, you're under the wrath of God. If you're not in Christ, you're under the wrath of God. And at the age of 100, just before he died, he was gloriously converted. You say, well, what does that mean? I I think it means what the preacher, John Flavel, would write when he says, one Word of God can do more than 10,000 words of men. So brother and sister, trust the Bible. Because when God speaks, 
miracles happen even if you can't see it. John Flavel had no idea that his words had pierced the heart of this young man. In fact, John Flavel went six feet under, but he's worshiping in heaven with the man because he chose by faith to use the word of, the word of God, and God always uses his word. So even if you think, is this getting through? Oh, it is. You can have confidence God uses the Bible. Back to the text, verse nine. Jesus heals this man and then tells him to go on his way. Verse nine says, now that day was the Sabbath. Now we have to stop there because what John is doing is he's, he's wanting us to see, this is a transition verse, that, that he's wanting us to see that what's about to happen after verse nine is super controversial. So there should be, when you read verse nine, something in your head that sounds like this. And we're gonna practice it together. You guys ready? All right, so I'm gonna read verse nine, and you're not gonna leave me hanging up here. I'm by myself. That'd be really awkward, okay? Verse nine. Now that day was the Sabbath. Yeah, it's crazy, I know, right? (laughs) Verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. And that's how they sounded, by the way. I know that. (laughs) Now, what is the Sabbath? Well, the Sabbath is the Old Testament law that commanded people to cease from their regular labors on a special day of the week so that they can rest and enjoy God. That's essentially what the Sabbath was. But the Jewish leaders were so afraid that people would break the Sabbath that they actually wrote up a document where they said there are 39 types of work you cannot do on the Sabbath, and if you do them, you're breaking the Sabbath. It's crazy. And one of the types of work literally says this. You are forbidden on the Sabbath to move something from one place to the next. That's a no-go. You're breaking the Sabbath if you do that. So when this former invalid man who's been healed after 38 years of lying on a mat and couldn't move walks joyously through the temple and the Jewish leaders see him Carrying his mat on the Sabbath, they get ticked off. Can you just imagine the conversation they must have had with this guy? It's almost comical, isn't it? You can't move your bed on the Lord's day. But I'm healed. (laughs) Wrong day. (laughs) But I've been here for 38 years. Wrong day. You know, just comical. Now, side note. How often in the church are we willing to die on a hill that we shouldn't die on? And when you choose to do that, you become blind to the work of God around you. This is what these Jewish leaders were doing. Verse 11, so the man speaks and he answers them. He says, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. In other words, the guy's like, listen, dude, I just work here. I just did what I was told, all right? (laughs) Verse 12, they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. So evidently, Jesus came by this pool, spoke eight words, the man got up, and there's a a ton of people around, so Jesus kind of mysteriously gets out of the way in the midst of the crowd. So he doesn't have any idea in any context for who Jesus is. Verse 14, afterward, now we don't know how much time went by, probably a little bit, not much, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. 
Some have interpreted Jesus here in verse 14 saying that it was the man's sin that gave him a disability. That's not what Jesus is saying. You have to understand that in the gospel accounts, all of Jesus' miracles are meant to show us two things simultaneously. First, that God is powerful. I hope you're thankful for that today. At a snap of a finger, at eight words, the impossible becomes possible. So first, God is powerful, and second, we need Jesus. It's what all the miracles in the gospels are meant to convey. John chapter nine is a great example of this. In John nine, Jesus puts mud, if you remember, on the eyes of a blind man and immediately heals him of his blindness. Now, the, the Pharisees find out what happened to this man. They go to Jesus, and, and, and Jesus tells them that just as the man was blind physically, so they are blind spiritually and need him. In other words, Jesus heals the blind man to show that he is powerful, but he also heals the blind man to show him that Jesus meets his greatest need. And in the same way, when Jesus heals the invalid man and then tells him, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you, what Jesus is doing is he is showing this man that if he doesn't repent of his sins, and trust in him alone, he will face far worse things than a paralyzed body in the life to come. In other words, Jesus is telling the man that it is no good to have a healthy body but a dead soul. Mark chapter eight, verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his what? Soul. Verse 15. So the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. In other words, this guy's a snitch. Verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And the next verse should be underlined in everyone's Bible. Because it's amazing. Verse 17. But Jesus answered them. This word answered in the original languages means like a defense attorney speaking on the behalf of his client. Jesus answered them and said this. My father is working until now and I am working. What does this mean? When Matthew chapter 12, you might recall Jesus calls himself something quite peculiar. He calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. This is Jesus' way of saying that, guys, God, the very one who created the Sabbath and is always working out his redemptive purposes, yeah, that's me. In other words, the reason why Jesus healed this man is to show the world that he is God. But not only that he is God, maybe the more important lesson he was wanting to show the world that day and us this morning is our third and final observation, and it's this. God is always working. God is always working. Jesus is telling these self-righteous Jewish leaders an important truth we all need to remember, and it's this. God is not building his kingdom based on a Monday through Friday, nine to five holidays off schedule. In fact, turn to your neighbor this morning because they need to hear it. Tell them God is working. Now turn to your other neighbor because they feel neglected that God is working. 
And, and you say, well, Brad, why does this matter? Because whether it's healing a paralytic on a Saturday, raising the dead on a Sunday, making someone more like Jesus on a Monday, giving grace to the hurting on a Tuesday, or bringing home a prodigal on a Wednesday, God is always, say it, working. You say, Brad, why does that matter? Why does that matter? And isn't that elementary? And I'd say, yes, it is. But haven't you found that in your Christian life, it's often the most basic things we tend to forget? Here's why I think this matters. And I believe God brought someone to church today just to hear this sentence. Here's why it matters. Because if God is still working, I can keep hoping. If God is still working, I can keep hoping. If God is still working, I can endure this trial. If God is still working, I can keep praying for my prodigal. If God is still working, I can fight this sin. If God is still working, you can keep hoping. And perhaps the reason God brought you to church today is because if you're honest, you've stopped hoping. Someone once said that once you've lost hope, you've lost everything. And how do you lose hope? Two reasons we stop hoping real fast. First, it's hard to hope, isn't it? It's hard to hope. Hope takes persistence and work, doesn't it? No one naturally wakes up in the morning and says, I'm just so hopeful today. But what does come naturally to all of us is despair. And when you live in despair, you begin to think things like this. This will never change. They're a lost cause. I'm never going to make it through this. Things will always be this way. The Bible says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. The fact of the matter is it's hard to hope, but perhaps the biggest reason people stop hoping is this. It hurts to hope. It hurts to hope. Some of you are here today and you were once hoping for God to do something, maybe in your life or in the life of someone else, and because God has seemed inactive, you've hardened your heart and you've stopped hoping. And you say, Brad, how do you know if you've stopped hoping? What have you stopped praying about that you used to pray about? Because when you, when you stop hoping, it just hardens your heart and it shuts your mouth and you never get on your knees because you think this is never gonna change, so why pray about it? And here's the thing, why does it hurt to hope? Because it hurts to continually wait and wait and pray and pray and plead and plead and at the end of the day, still be disappointed by the seemingly lack of activity of God. In other words, when you hope, you make yourself vulnerable to disappointment. It hurts to hope. So brother and sister, can I just, can I just ask you this morning? Is that you? Have, have you stopped hoping? I want, you to, I want you to listen to these words. Verse 17, my father is working until now and I am working. What Jesus is doing this morning is coming alongside you in your hardness of heart and in all of your hurt and pain. And he comes alongside you and says, listen, if I'm still working, you can keep hoping. 
I want you to think about this question. It's gonna be on the screen. How would you answer this? What have you stopped hoping for that God is inviting you to hope for again? What have you stopped hoping for that God is inviting you to hope for again? What is it? In fact, what I wanna do right now is just, all of us just bow our heads, close our eyes, and I want you to, to reflect on that question. Maybe you have a son or daughter that is very far from God and you stopped hoping that God is able to save them. Maybe your marriage is on the verge of collapse and you've just stopped trusting God that things could be different and better. Maybe you're trapped in a cycle of sin and you desperately need victory this morning. I I don't know what your situation is, but here's what I wanna tell you. God wants to help you by his spirit to help you hope again. And so here's here's what I wanna do right now. Let's Let's just put our flag in the ground and say, oh God, by your help and by your spirit, I wanna hope again. And if that's you this morning, I wanna invite you just to stand right where you're at. If you say, I need, to, I need to hope again, there's been this situation, I'm not, I've lost hope and I need to hope again. Would you just stand? And, and the Lord, see, there's nothing special about standing up, but there's something about being in church with God's people and saying, God has spoken to my heart and today I, I wanna stop living in hopelessness and I want to hope again because as long as he is working, I can, steep, steep, I, can keep, I can keep hoping. And here's what the Bible says. Today when you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Don't, don't drive out of the parking lot today regretting that you didn't stand and receive prayer. What could God do if you stand and people plead with you for that thing that you've lost hope in? What if he actually heard your prayers? So here's what I'm gonna do. If you see someone standing near you, would you just reach out and put a hand on them this morning just as a way of saying, listen, I'm with you and I wanna pray for you and I want God to help you to hope again. Listen, we could look back on today. May 5th, 2019 is the day I got my hope back. Let's, let's go to God together. Oh, Father, you are the God of all hope. Indeed, you are our living hope. And yet we confess that we who stand, I include myself in that, have lost hope in some things. And whatever the situation may be, Lord, we need faith today to remember that because you are working, we can keep hoping even if we can't see you working. And so our assurance and our confidence is not in our standing, it is not in our crying, it is not in our praying, it is in the name of Jesus, who when Jesus speaks, he works miracles. And so we're pleading with you this morning, Lord, would you work some miracles today? Would you see my brothers and sisters who are standing up before you by faith and say, yes, I need to hope again. Would you fill their hearts with hope so that they can leave this place and do what the Apostle Paul says, rejoicing in hope. So hear our cries today, Lord. 
thank you that you are able. And because you're able, we come to you in faith and in brokenness, knowing you hear us. And when you speak, you act. We pray this now together in Jesus' name. Amen.